an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Max. Who's on the show this week? This week on the show is legendary NBA reporter Jackie McMullen. You guys know Jackie McMullen. She was a uh, longtime, longtime reporter for the Boston Globe. She covered the Celtics in addition to many other things. She has covered the NBA for her whole career. She went from the Globe to Sports Illustrated. She went from Sports Illustrated to ESPN. Some of our listeners might know her from Around the Horn. She was in Around the Horn mainstay, but she retired from ESPN last summer and she's not fully retired though because she just put out a new podcast it's a narrative podcast called icons club it is about the evolution of the nba superstar she did it with the ringer and so we talked about uh all of that stuff her early days in journalism where she thinks sports media is going how you get michael jordan to say anything honest and uh, it was a pleasure to talk to her wait so we have legendary nba reporter jackie mcmullen on the week the playoffs start, the scheduling is just outstanding. <laughs> for the for the maybe second time in 485 episodes, we're on the news. <laughs> I, I love it. I look forward to this. I look forward to the playoffs. I enjoy the uh, blatant uh, following of our own interests on the show, which uh, in Max's case involves uh, getting Celtics reporters on. <laughs> I will say, if you do not follow the NBA, there may be a couple moments in this episode where you feel a little lost, but just stick with it because Jackie is an incredible reporter. We are uh, brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us produce the show. Thanks to them. And now here's Max with Jackie McMullen. Hi, Jackie. Hello, Max. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Well, thank you. I'm excited to talk to you, too. So we're even. Here's where I'd like to start, which is your start. I've heard you tell this story before, but I think some of our listeners might not know it. Can you tell me about how you got into journalism? Well, I grew up in Westwood, Massachusetts. Great sports town, but particularly for girls. The girls were great at everything. And I would stomp around my house because I'd pick up the paper, the you know, the local weekly paper, and they were always writing about the boys, and it just, I didn't understand it. One of my friends had the school records for the swim team for the boys and the girls. Mm-hmm. So why are we writing about the boys? And so I would stomp around the house, and my dad, Fred McMullen, the great Fred McMullen, finally said, you know, I'm really tired of it. Why don't you do something about it? And, you know, I'm 15. I'm like, well, maybe I will. And an athlete yourself. Oh, yeah, I'm playing all the sports, sure. And he said, well, why don't you do something? I said, well, you know, I might. Maybe I will. And he said, no, now. Call the sports editor. I'm, I'm tired of listening to you complain. So now I have to do this. And I'm like, well, I don't know his number. My dad's like, here's the number. <laughs> so <laughs> I called up and all my bravado went away very quickly. I was just a kid. And the sports editor was a great guy named Frank Wall. Cigar chomping, like right out of, you know, he was Ed Asner, right, from Mary Tyler Moore. And he said, look, I'd love to cover the girls, but I don't have any people to do it. I'm a really small staff and I don't have anybody. He said, well, why don't you do it? And I said, well, I'm 15. He said, well, if it stinks, I won't print it. So I would write out these stories longhand and I'd take them down to my high school office and then magically they'd appear in the newspaper. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And I wrote only about girls. I I refused to write about the boys. I didn't write one story about the boys. And ironically, then I get into this business and I never write about women. It's kind of, it's kind of too bad, you know? But if, you know, at the Globe, if you were going to 
get somewhere, you were going to write about the pro teams and the college the college men's teams. So whenever I did write about women, it was kind of like my pro bono work because I usually had to do it on my own time and make the suggestions on my own. No one was ever assigning me that. So you start writing about women's high school sports in Westwood. You're 15, 16. Clearly, there was something about the work that clicked for you. It wasn't just that right. uh, it was making you not stomp around the house anymore, right? Right. Well, my dad was a salesman, and he spent a lot of time on the road. And he was a big sports fan. He's born and raised in Queens, New York City. And he used to bring home the New York Post and the New York Daily News and put them on the table. And I was just mesmerized by, you know, Dick Young and Pete Vesey, who later became not really a colleague, but certainly someone that I was sitting next to in press boxes and stuff. So I loved sports. You know, I was the only girl playing street hockey out in the, you know, out in the neighborhood. And I loved to read. And I just thought, well, wow, this, this, you know, as I got older, this might be a pretty good pairing for things that I like to do. I didn't know any better. If I knew how hard it was, maybe I wouldn't have done it, but I didn't know that. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's helpful to, uh, to not know what you're getting in for, I guess. Right. Tell me about showing up at the Globe, because, again, I'm not sure people listening would know that the Globe sports section that you joined was this just Ugh. murderer's row yeah. of talent, one of the great sports sections of all time. Right. What was it like to join that group? So I was a news intern in the summer of 1982, I was a about to graduate, and they don't take graduates in the internship program. You have to be an undergraduate because they don't want you bugging them for a job afterwards. Mm -hmm. But because I played basketball at UNH, I was always playing both semesters, so I couldn't do internships like normal kids in the English department or journalism. So I was behind, and I really wanted to do the Globe internship. It was such a cool thing. So my professor, Andy Merton, said to me, well, let's defer your graduation." And I'm like, well, can you do that? And he's like, yeah, I think we can. So I deferred my graduation. <laughs> I went to the Globe as a news intern because there was only one sports intern. And I didn't think I had much of a shot at that. I just didn't have the same clips and the same gravitas that these kids from all over the country had. And the sports in intern that summer was Ian Thompson, terrific writer, <laughs> and still my best friend in the business. We literally grew <laughs> up in this business together. And so I was on the news side. You know, my, I had the seven to three shift and I'd stay till six o'clock because you never knew if a story might come. And then Ian and I became very good friends. So I was always hanging around the sports department. And then one day I just said, well, I'm going to just try to write a sports story. And I went to Vince Story, the boss, and he didn't know who the hell I was. And I wrote the story for him. And, and then I just said, hey, this is what I really want to do. And I'm young and I'm cheap and I'm a girl. And he said, well, come back in a month. So I went, came back in a month, and he said, yeah, I guess I'm going to hire you. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I was kind of amazing. You know, I dreamed of that. I thought I would end up there. I didn't think I would start there. Why do you think he hired you? I don't know. I don't know. I did write a story for the news department. You know, it was an assignment, an intern assignment, about a homeless woman that had died on the streets, and they're having trouble identifying her. But I start asking all these homeless people about her. And it turned out she was kind of a legend on the streets. Mm. And so I said to my editor, I, I think there's a bigger story here. And so they let me take a crack at it. And uh, I think it was pretty good. And maybe that caught his attention. I don't, I really don't know. He just saw something. And, you know, he knew I was hanging around the sports department. I, I knew sports. That was part of it, I think. Yeah. I knew sports just as well as any of the guys if not better than some of them, to be honest, because I lived it. I grew up living it. So I think that helped for sure. Yeah. Whether I like that or not, that was just credibility that I was given by the players and the athletes I covered as well. Did that credibility for you come quickly or is that something you had to earn? Oh, no, you had to earn it. It was a long haul in those early years. You're talking about the early 80s. I'm covering colleges to start. There's no real locker room policy. and Nobody wants me around. Nobody wants me in there. So you're dealing with all of that. It got easier when I got to the pros because everything was very clear. I had the same rights to access as you did. Mm -hmm. But with the colleges, it was very murky. In fact, I covered BC football when Jack McNell was there. And Jack McNell is the greatest guy. He was such a nice man. I loved him. And he, he liked me very much, but he did not want me in his locker room. And I said, but, but I have to have the same rights as everybody else. So they closed the locker room to everybody. So needless to say, that didn't make me very popular. Yeah, people must have loved you for that one. Yeah, they loved me for that. So, But I will say this. I'm 21 years old at the Boston Globe, and I have my holy trinity of Will McDonough and Bob Ryan and Lee Montville, who just looked out for me, gave me credibility, mm -hmm. 
by validating me, if you will. And, you know, I learned so much from Will about reporting and because back in those days, no cell phones. So if you want to call somebody, you got to go to, you know, call the office and talk to the secretary. And Will was the one that said to me, know the secretary's name, find out about the secretary's kids, develop a relationship with her or him Mm -hmm. because she's or he is your gateway to these people. And that was such great advice. It really was. And then Monfil was just a wordsmith like I had never seen before. And I'd be in the office and he'd be writing a column, smoking. He was a chain smoker, drinking a can of Diet Coke and just agonizing over his column for the next day. And then I'd read it and I'm like, this is incredible. And he said, I'm not sure I'm going to go with this one. And then he'd stay there another two hours and get another, whole nother column, a better one. Hmm. And I'd say, well, then that's great. You can use this one, you know, the next time. Right. Nope, nope. He was just a master, just beautiful with words. And then, of course, Bob Ryan is the greatest game story writer who ever lived with an encyclopedic memory and just, he's like my big brother. And everywhere I went when I got to the NBA, Bob is saying, she's okay. This is Jackie. She's okay. You have no idea how. Like introducing you to players and stuff? And, and referees and GMs and everybody, you know, his brain. Oh, I would love to like have a peek inside his brain. It's unbelievable. <laughs> he can remember everything. I can't remember things that I said yesterday. He remembers everything. And we were at a lot of great events together, not just basketball. We were there for all the Patriots Super Bowls and when yeah. the Red Sox won the World Series for the first time in however many years. And, you know, I remember when the World Series, you know, the, the first one that they won, Colorado, game four, you know, the, it, it's the third inning, and Bob came up to me and he said, do you know what you're going to write? I'm like, no, the, game, the game's not over. He's like, here's mine. It was all done. It was brilliant. No and shit. I'm like, and I'm going, oh, sh- Christ, what am I going to do? <laughs> and then I just realized, you know, for me, I was just going to write about the actual moment when all of us could finally, from Boston, exhale and say, wow, this really happened. So that's what I did. But, I mean, I'm thinking, my goodness, Bob's got this whole thing done. How did he do that? I mean, that's 2004. That's like almost 25 years into that job. Right, right. Was it hard to find your place among those guys? No, they made it so easy. They were so great to Ian and me because, you know, Ian was the sports intern. He was an underclassman. And then the next summer, Vince hired him too. Mm -hmm. It was a really smart thing to do because Ian and I adored each other, but we were also very competitive and we were always fighting each other for all the big stories. And he got every one. He was better than me. He was more creative than I was. He was a better writer than I was. He took chances. He just was further along than I was. I learned a lot from Ian, too. A lot. You know, I still think he's one of the, he's written some of the most brilliant long-form stories that's ever been written at the Globe. And uh, he doesn't get his due, and I'm not sure why. I don't know how that happens, why some of us move, you know, get more recognition. I do think television is part of it. Mm -hmm. Television is such a powerful medium. You know, I've done a lot of television and it definitely raised my profile, but I always say to people, you know, they're like, oh, I love your work. And I'm thinking, no, you don't know my work. You're watching me on Around the Horn. That's part of my work, but my work is writing. I'm a writer. Don't ever forget I'm a writer uh, because I'm very proud of that, you know. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Was there a moment with that group where you felt like you'd sort of made it? Where you felt like you belonged? Well, there were a couple. So one was I took over the Celtics beat because Bob left for Channel 5. He didn't get the column at the Globe. And he kind of stormed off in a huff and went to Channel 5, a local TV station, for a year. And came back as a columnist, by the way, too. Mm-hmm. So I had to cover the Celtics. And, you know, we're talking about 
you know, Bird, Mikhail, Parrish, that crew. And uh, Bird had come in late on media day. So media day, you know, they have two a day. So they, the media day, he wasn't there. And they said, oh, he missed his flight. And I'm thinking, well, that's weird. That guy's particular as hell. Why did he miss the flight? You know, it didn't really ring true to me. But anyway, so I was brand new to this beat. I was so afraid I was going to miss something that I went back to the evening session as well as the morning session. And Bird was there. At the morning session, he had said, yeah, I just, you know, was a screw up with the flight or whatever. But by the evening session, he had heard what the GM, GM Volk had said, and he was pissed because he felt like they made him look irresponsible. What really was happening is they were having trouble with his contract. So I was there at the evening session. I was the only journalist there. I sat in the stands with Jan Volk the entire practice because it was just the two of us besides everybody else. And he was trying to get to know me and whatever. And he, get, you know, luckily had given me his number that night. Again, no cell phones. He gave me his home phone number mm-hmm. so I would have it. Anyway, as practice was ending, Bird was walking off and I grabbed him and I said, hey, I, I'm Jackie McMullen from The Globe. Um, I didn't really quite understand like what happened. I, I just want to make sure I got it right. I'm new to this beat. I want to make sure. He goes, yeah, well, here, let me tell you how it is. And he <laughs> went off and he was killing Jan Volk, who I had just been. And by the way, I'm sure he saw me sitting with him, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure he mm-hmm. saw me sitting, think, getting madder and madder, like he's turning this narrative in a way that favors him. So I was like, whoa, you know, so I'm writing this all down. And then I got to go home and call Jan Volk. <laughs> and he goes, didn't I just leave you? I said, uh, yeah, but. And so it was kind of an explosive story. And it was like literally your first day on the job. Yeah. Kind, well, not really. I mean, I had been around a little bit before, yeah. you know, as the 18th man in, right? Right. But my right, first right. day, I guess my first day on the beat. And so I got there the next day and, you know, the other writers were pissed and like the Celtics were mad. Everybody was mad at me. And I'm thinking, I mean, I just was doing my <laughs> job, you know, and I went into the office that day and Willie came up to me and he said, good for you, kid good for you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you didn't let anybody talk you out of that. He goes, those are the kind of stories you're going to have to do if you want to make your mark in this town, mm-hmm. you know? And so that was great for me, you know? And then the other one was at the 87 finals. I was the advanced person. So that's Lake, Celtics Lakers, but they would send me ahead of time to do the other team. After that final, the 87 final, I, I was in the, you know, the, pre, the uh, we had a, like a, a hangout room for the writers and Bob pulled me aside. Bob Ryan pulled me aside and said, "You're gonna, you're gonna be able to do this. You're, you've, you've done good, you know." And that was like for me, it was like a rocket ship to the moon just for him to say that. Um, and I made mistakes just like everybody. But the great thing for me was my name was Jackie McMullen, so everybody thought I was an Irish Catholic guy from Southie, <laughs> you know? Right, because all you were is your byline. You're not on. Yeah, I TV. wasn't on the radio. I wasn't on TV. So they all thought I was a guy from Southie, and I was you know, a girl from Manhasset, New York, but they didn't need to know that. Right. And so you must have had like a couple of years where everyone assumed you were Jackie, the dude from Southie. Yeah. I mean, it was December of 82 that I started working there. So it was a good three years before anyone was paying any attention to me, maybe longer. But it also meant that you had some time to prove yourself just on the merits of the work, right? Like you were just the text. Right. And also out of the spotlight. Right. I had a chance to make mistakes without anybody saying, well, that's because she's a stupid girl. I mean, if my name was Barbara McMullen, who knows? Hmm. I think it really helped me. I, it wasn't intentional. It's just how it went. Can we talk a little bit about the social dynamics, both of like that era of the Celtics in terms of the relationship between reporters and players and ownership and mm-hmm. management and how that's evolved to like my sense from reading your stuff for so long and hearing you talk about it and, and this podcast that you've just finished is that you are incredibly attuned to what feel to me to be like really complicated dynamics even in that bird story right it's your first day on the beat and the best player on the team and the general manager both need to pay some attention to you bird didn't care i mean bird was going to just walk off the court but i stopped him you know bird never cared about his message or what anybody thought of him he was different that way yeah but part of that dynamic still is like the globe is one of two or three places that's going to be writing about the celtics you're just by being there you are powerful in that room in some way. And that power has now changed in sports media. These guys all have their own right. megaphones and their own way of talking to fans. Sure. And, but the thing that I'm really actually interested in is like how you have managed your relationships with these individuals. You've 
written books with Bird, written books with Bird and Magic. You wrote a book with Shaq. You've been partners with these guys. Right. It's a little dicey, honestly. Yeah. And then you've also had to cover them and then also got to maintain the relationships long term, but you got to write hard stuff. Yeah. I wonder how you think about the nuances of those relationships and how you find the place where it feels comfortable journalistically to you. Well, I don't know. I like talking to people. I like people. My whole life, I've been able to make people feel comfortable and tell me things they don't tell other people, not just athletes, people in my own life, not on purpose necessarily. Hopefully, I'm a decent listener. And the way I always approached these guys was, especially if I had to write a difficult story, which is always the hardest part, right? Like I remember once I had to write a difficult story about Dennis Johnson, God rest his soul, who I loved and was so good to me. And I said, here's the story I'm going to write. Like, talk me out of it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, here's, here's what I'm saying. Like, talk me out of it. And then he would tell me his side. And sometimes they talk you out of it. And sometimes you're like, you didn't talk me out of it. I just want you to know this is what I'm going to write. I just always felt if someone was going to write something about me, I, didn't, I would never want to be blindsided by it. Mm-hmm. So I just always tried to present that courtesy. And sometimes it doesn't matter. And you write hard things and they never speak to you again. I mean, that's just part of the deal. And I, you know, I had to say some pretty difficult things about Shaq along the way. But, you know, I think he knew, always knew where I was coming from. That, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So those relationships happen over time. And, like, for instance, my relationship with Larry Bird, I had no idea what he thought of me. He never spoke to me by my name mm-hmm. when I covered him. Rarely. Maybe once in a great while. I didn't hang out in the locker with him and tell jokes. I thought I was a woman. I had to get in and get out and do my business and be very professional. You know, a lot of the guys would go out on the road um, with the players and have drinks. I never did that. I didn't think that was a good idea for me, honestly. And so I had no idea what Larry thought of me really until much, much later. And I think that was true with a lot of these athletes, especially this Icons Club podcast that I did. We were covering the history of the league from the 60s all the way up till now. And decades have gone by since I covered these guys. Decades, right? And so it either all melts away or it's cemented that I'm never talking to you again. Or it's kind of like, no, you know, I look back and you were fair. You were tough, but you were fair, you know. And there's an appreciation for that. Or there isn't. And you don't get Mm -hmm. them. And they're not on your podcast, you know. Yeah, I mean, what I hear you saying is you can say hard things and maintain respect. I hope so. And I worry about today's journalists because, as you said, they have their own platforms. They think they don't need journalists, and they're wrong, by the way. And I tell them all this. I'm like, I know you think you've got your own production company, and but we can tell your story better than you can. That's just the truth. No one tells their own story the best. It's the people around them that tell the story the best. And nobody wants a whitewashed version of you. Mm-hmm. They want warts and all. That's what makes you lovable. That's what makes you interesting. Because, I mean, I'm on the other end of it. I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. But I'm just saying to them, you know, there are great journalists out there that can tell your story. And it might not be exactly the way you want it to be told, but it'll have weight and it'll have legacy to it. If you just tell a great story about how wonderful you are and show your family, you know, is this perfect little family, which probably isn't, that's boring. And it's not true. You were saying that writing books with players was tricky. Yeah. How did that trickiness manifest itself? Well, fortunately, when I wrote the game, when the game was ours with Magic and Larry, they were both long retired because it would be impossible to write that book and then cover them afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. You just, you'd have no, you'd have to recuse yourself in essence. And when Larry um, became a front office executive with the Pacers, he was on the tail end of that when this book came out. I forget who I was working for. Was I working? I can't remember. Maybe the Globe, maybe Sports Illustrated. I've lost track, but I just recused myself from covering Larry Bird at all. I just couldn't happen because what what objectivity could I possibly have? You know, right? So, and with Shaq, uh, he was supposed to be in Boston for two years, and he was playing unbelievably well. I think people forget how great he was that year, and he was playing so well they felt comfortable moving on from Kendrick Perkins and some other things, and uh, he hurt his Achilles, and so. He had to retire a year early. But the plan was we were going to take these two years to write this really fun book, and then he was going to retire. Mm-hmm. Well, he hurt his Achilles, and we had to speed up the process, and the book came out after he retired. Yeah. And so I didn't have to worry about conflict of interest with Shaquille O'Neal because he wasn't playing anymore. 
Right. So I don't think I could write a book with someone who was in the league. Like if, you know, Steph Curry called me tomorrow and said, let's do something. I, I don't know how that would work because, you know, if I was still covering the league, that would be almost impossible to do. It's tricky. It's very, very tricky. Because with the books, you're really partners. Well, yeah. I mean, you're financial partners. There's no way yeah. around that. Yeah. It's pretty much the truth. You know, it always made me a little queasy. I'm not going to mm -hmm. lie about that. But they were just such exceptional opportunities. I didn't turn them down. Did getting in in that way with three absolute legends of the game, like Bird, Magic, and Shaq, did it make you a better reporter in the other parts of your work? I think it just made me understand a little better what it's like to be a superstar. I think that's the thing that I came away with. And it's, it sort of was the impetus for this podcast series, The Icons Club, was the idea that when Wilt and Russell were playing in the 60s, you know, they're trying to bash each other's head ins, but they were also really good friends because they were the only one that understood how the other one felt. The rest of those players in that time period couldn't possibly understand the pressure they were under. Mm -hmm. And I think that was true with Magic and Larry. And that was true with Michael and Kobe and LeBron and on and on. And so that was a little bit of the impetus for this series. We were trying to show the evolution of this icon and how one person passed on his knowledge to the next, right? Yeah. That was sort of the cool part for me. That was the part I enjoyed the most. That was the thread that took this series from Russell, who's still, you know, he's, I think he's a little more um, of a recluse now, but was as re recently as five years ago, still reaching out to young players who are playing right now, making phone calls to them. Yeah, that's a huge part of the show is just about the ways that these generations talk to each other and how... Yeah older superstars sort of paved the way directly right. like through like middle of the night conversations between Jordan and Kobe exactly. for how the next generation will do it. And I've heard you talk a fair amount about young reporters. And one of the things that I heard in the icons club were these echoes of what I know you to be doing for young reporters too. I hope. And it's so wildly different now. Like if you Jackie were starting out now, what would you do? Where would you start? I don't know. And I have a feeling what would happen, because this is what happens if someone's young and they're identified as someone that might have some talent or some promise, they get fast-tracked. And I was very fortunate. I mean, I was frustrated as a 23-year-old when Ian got to go to the Red Sox game and I was still covering Northeastern football. I got frustrated and jealous and whatever, but it was great for me because I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready. I wasn't mature enough. I didn't I hadn't written enough. I hadn't reported enough. And today with young People that have promise or talent, especially if you're a woman or a person of minority, I think you get fast-tracked. And I worry for those young people because sometimes they're not ready. Mm -hmm. And uh, so even though it, my career maybe have marinated a little bit in the early years, it's the best thing that ever happened to me, for sure. So a young me, I don't know. I mean, the other thing is I didn't get into television until much, much later in my career. Uh, I started doing a little local television and then... Uh, you know, around the horn happened, and that was just an amazing thing. That those guys are my family. It was such an incredible, fun show to do, but it's difficult. You had to know all the sports, and you know, you had to think fast and all of that. But you know, that just all of a sudden made me a television person. Right. And you know, the lure of television should never ever be underestimated. You know, underestimated because it is intoxicating. Mm -hmm. And so many of the great writers that I know, the lure of television has ended their writing careers not not on purpose just turned out that way you know Wilbon I think Mike Wilbon's just so talented in everything he does he kind of is aware of it and every once in a while writes something you know just mm -hmm. because he knows those are his roots Stephen A was a great great writer and reporter in Philly I don't I can't remember the last time he's written anything again not a criticism this is just the reality of it Pablo Pablo Torre yeah. wrote some great long form he's he's a daily podcast and he's fantastic at it. And he's a television personality, you know? I was going to say, it's happening with podcasts, too. I mean, like, sure, Bill Simmons yeah. doesn't really write anymore. He doesn't write anymore. And I mean, we all know how great the book of basketball is. It's it's the Bible. So I watch some of the young people today that are coming up, and I see the same thing. They they're, and, and listen, I get it. If you're a television star, your salary's different. Your cachet is different. I get mm -hmm. it. I don't yeah. begrudge anyone for making that choice. And maybe a young me would have made the same choice. I guess we'll never know. Well, you were able to do all of this different kind of work, like totally different mediums. You know, like you were a beat reporter with the Globe, 
writing features for Sports Illustrated, been a columnist who wrote for ESPN, we're on TV. Now you're doing podcasts. Yeah, I'm interested in what all those shifts were like and which ones were the hardest. Oh, covering the beat was the hardest. Yeah. But for sure. Because every night you go to bed thinking you're getting beat. What we used to do is you go to bed at night and you run to the corner store the next morning and buy the Herald to see if you got beat on anything. I mean, that's just how it was. And so you're on edge the whole time. I always say to Adrian, well, you know, well, which everyone calls him oil, which I call him Adrian. I used to do that job for like a very small amount of time and it chewed me up and spit me out. I don't know how he does it. it you got to have nerves of steel to, to do that job. And I covered the NBA overall at one point. That was a great job because I got to write the Sunday column and cover different teams. But again, you had to come up with original content and you had to have stuff that nobody else had. And the pressure was, it's self-induced pressure, but it's pressure was immense, you know. I learned a lot from that though. That's where the seeds of credibility are planted because you take a stand, you have an opinion, those kind of things. And that's why Sports Illustrated hired me was to do a Sunday, like their version of a Sunday no column in their magazine. There's one form of all of this. You basically just were like, no, I'm not going to do it social media and Twitter. You're just like, yeah. you're not on them. Nope, not doing it. Yeah, no, I don't have an interest in that. And it's probably goes back to being a, a woman in the business and some of the mail I used to get, like in the real mail, and just so horrific things about my family, things, you know, just horrific things. And I answered every single letter I ever got. You answered the horrific letters? Well, if you're going to answer the nice ones, Lee Monfield gave me that advice. He's like, oh, they wrote, someone wrote you a nice letter. What are you going to do? You take it home, put it in your desk? He said, because if you are, you better put the bad ones in your desk too, because none of these people know you. So if you're going to hang on to the good ones, then you should hang on to the bad ones or just treat them all the same way. People that don't know you. And he was right. It was great advice. Great advice. But yeah, I wrote back to the nastiest ones. I remember once I wrote back to a guy I said, thanks for writing, although I'm amazed you know how. That's all I wrote. <laughs> and it was actually an email. And he immediately wrote back and said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I sent that nasty email. I was drunk. I was, I was ticked off that they lost. I think it was a Patriots fan. And you were so critical of them. And I love my team. And I can't believe you did that. And, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm like so embarrassed. And I never should have sent that. And I can't believe you read it. And now you've answered me. And I'm like, okay, well, just realize there's a person on the other end of these. That's all. Do you still do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I haven't had to because um, like I never had an email address at ESPN. There wasn't a place people could send me emails. I think maybe there's comments at the bottom of my stories, but those I don't. To me, that's like Twitter. And yeah, that doesn't bother count. with that. But yeah, anyone that it, it just hasn't happened in recent years. But at the Globe, it happened a lot, especially when I was young. People would write actual letters. And, um, you know, a couple of were threatening. One was from an inmate in prison. I had to like we had to turn that one over to the police. Did you and write so, that guy back? No, no, I did not. I did not. Um, that one I just took right because that was a little scary. But I think from, from that, I just learned like just people are knee jerk. Like this guy saying, oh my God, I was drunk. I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. I'm not a bad guy. God, I can't believe I said that to you. And I'm sorry, you know, whatever. And then some people don't back down at all. Yeah. And uh, I just thought, well, what do I need that noise in my life for? These people don't know me. They think they know me. Uh, why do I want to engage with that? I, I have a family that I'd like to keep private. I have a different last name. Mike Mullen's not my legal name. It's just the name I use for work. I, why do I want to get involved in all that? I, I don't need the accolades and I don't need the criticism. I don't need either. I just want to do my stuff and go home. Sounds so healthy. Well, I suppose, but I, you know, the problem was near the end when I was working at ESPN and you had to be on top of the news, you know, a lot of news was broken on Twitter. A lot of things were happening on Twitter. Right. I mean, that's part of why I asked. It's just like, there must've been some professional pressure. Oh, the, every year ESPN, the social media team would come up to me and say, okay, you have to be on social media. It's a requirement of your job. It's, it's in your contract. Like you have to do this. And I would say, okay, I'll do it. And then they'd go away and they'd forget. And then the next year they'd say, we really, and I'd, because, you know, it would be a new social media person because they're all 20 years old or, you know, 25 years old to work in the social media. And they'd go on to their next job and they'd come to me and say, we could really grow your platform. And I'm like, trying to shrink my platform. You know, I'm just not, you know, as my kids like to say, I'm marginally famous. That's good enough. I'm not really trying to be someone else than that. I mean, I understand the importance of social media and I admire people who, take the time to do it and use it to their advantage and get, you know, 5 million followers and all, whatever mm. they do. It's just not for me. It, it doesn't interest me at all. Was it hard to retire? No, 
No, and I'm not really retired. That's the problem. It wasn't hard. It was time for me. I signed an extension with ESPN, and I, I really had reservations about it. I have elderly parents who need need my attention. I have you know two grown kids that don't live in Massachusetts anymore, and I want to go see them whenever I feel like it. I have a husband that's put up with a lot for a long time. It just, I got tired. Writing is hard. Mm-hmm. I find it hard. I find it torturous, actually. And it just takes a lot out of you. And I was finding it harder and harder to do. And then, of course, during the pandemic, my whole gig is to sit down in a room with people and get them to talk to me. And I'm doing that over Zoom. You know, so I just, it was the right time. I, my husband and I were joking, like I finally started making really good money and I walked away from it. <laughs> Not very good timing. So anyway, I just stepped away from what I was doing at ESPN. I don't need mm-hmm. to be on TV anymore. I'm 61 years old. Nobody needs to see me on TV. I mean, honestly, it's, it's a young person's business television. I really felt strongly like, let's get out before everyone's like, why is that old lady still on TV? And the writing, I just needed a break. I haven't really, I thought, oh, I just, I just want to take a break for a while. But then, of course, I did this podcast, and it's like writing a book. Yeah. It was brutal. It was so much harder than I thought. And I, my, my own worst enemy, because I, I go down rabbit holes, and I'm like, oh, I got to get Curry, or I can't finish this. Or We need Duran in this episode. Oh, man, we got to go back and get Walton. Mm-hmm. So I was my own worst enemy. I wanted to get everybody I could. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. The writing got harder towards the end? You were saying like it, you've always found it torturous, but it was getting harder? Yeah, it was. It was harder for me. I don't know why. I think I just was tired. I mean, I've been doing this a really long time, Yeah, like 40-something years, and I just, I guess I just wanted to stop for a while and um and you know now that this podcast is finally out it really was almost two years in the making yeah tell me about what it was like to make it why was it so much harder than you expected well because i didn't know what it entailed at all i had no idea i just didn't and you know we had a vague idea of what the topic was and then that changed 800 times and Mm -hmm. you know the one of the first interviews i did was with coos you know bob coozy and we talked to him for a really long time and i need to apologize to him because i wasn't pointed in my questions i didn't I hadn't formulated it yet, you know? That was one of the things I was going to ask you about. I mean, I've worked on a couple of podcasts where journalists were doing it for the first time, and and the kind of interview you need to do... It's very different, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I I learned that as I went, you know? And so I feel badly for some of the people I interviewed early on because I was all over the place. You know, we hadn't fine-tuned this idea of these great icons and their social responsibility and how they pass along their knowledge to the next generation and how each one of them manage that going forward. And, you know, Jordan, I, that interview we probably did midway through. Mm-hmm. He was so tremendous. He talked with us for almost an hour. I've known Michael a long time and he was fantastic. And he's the one that kind of crystallized for me what this thing should be. Mm-hmm. This idea of how everybody handles their own time. Dr. J was 19 years old at UMass and Bill Russell came down and took him out to dinner and they spent three hours together and they talked about everything except for basketball, about the social responsibility of a young black man in the sports world and how academics come into play, all these things. And then Bill Russell gave him his number and said, if you ever need me, call. And Julius did. So now Julius is in the league and there's this young kid, Michael Jordan, and he's studying Julius's portfolio because Julius didn't just be a spokesperson for Coca-Cola. He bought a Coca-Cola bottling plant and became one of the most, um, one of the most successful minority owners in the world with that. And so Jordan's studying him. And then Julius comes up to him and says, here's my number. If you ever need anything, just call. And Jordan's like, "Mm, no, I got to do this myself. Hmm. I got to do this on my own. And so he did. And through the years, he never made that overture to anybody until Kobe jumped him, basically. Kobe's just like, what do you do this? How do you do that? And you know, during that lockout year, they're talking 
all the time and in the middle of the night. Two in the morning, yeah. Right. And, you know, Jordan's hanging up and he's going, why am I telling this kid all this stuff? Why, why am I telling him? I'm giving him everything. Why am I doing this? You know, <laughs> but I think he just saw so much of Kobe in himself. One of the, the greatest things he said in this series, I think, was he said, people should respect Kobe even more. He said, a lot of my fans didn't like Kobe because they thought he was copying me. And he said, imitating someone else is even harder than being that original person. And he said, and I had great respect for him for doing that. And so the idea is the evolution of the NBA icon and how they become empowered and how they evolve through years. But in, in a lot of ways, I felt like we watched Michael evolve through this podcast series because we showed, you know, the Michael that was going to punch Steve Kerr in practice. And then we get all the way to the end where Michael's staying up at 3 a.m. giving Kobe everything and then, mm -hmm. you know, crying like a child at his funeral. So I, in a lot of ways, I felt like he came to symbolize this evolution that we were talking about. I think Michael Jordan's very different than people think. How so? What do you think? I just think there's a really soft side to him that he couldn't show as a competitor, mm -hmm. but is now willing to show a little more as he grows older. And Kevin Durant called him and he said, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm the owner of the Charlotte Hornets. Should I be telling the Brooklyn Nets guy all my secrets? But he's come to realize that it's part of your responsibility as an icon is to pass on the knowledge. So I think Michael kind of looked at it and said, I sort of have a responsibility to the game yeah. to pass all this along. He went to LeBron and said, hey, if you ever need anything, give me a call. And, and as Jordan says in the pod, to his credit, he never did. And Jordan can appreciate and respect that because he never did. He sounded different to me on your podcast than I've ever heard him in any other context, even different than The Last Dance. And it made me wonder a little bit whether it was like post-Last Dance, you know, like he was on the other side of telling stories. Well, and it was post-Last Dance. It was post-Last Dance when I talked with him. Thank you for saying that because... That's how I felt. I felt like we showed a side of him that maybe not everybody sees. I've seen that side of him a bunch of times in conversations with him. And I had even said to him in the past, you should let people see this side of you. Mm -hmm. It's pretty fascinating. Do you think it's all those off-the-record conversations that allow you to get him to talk like that with a microphone on? I don't know. You'd have to ask him, you know, like with Larry. Like I said, I, I didn't even know if he had ever heard of me or knew me. And then one day I got a call from Jill Leone, his agent, who's wonderful. I've known Jill many, many years now. She's been great for Larry. She's his shield. You don't get past Jill. If you want to get to Larry, you, you better see Jill because you're not getting anywhere. And, uh, you know, she called me one day. She said, hey, this is off the record. Larry's doing a book. I thought she was going to say, I have, we have this writer. What do you think of him or her or whatever? And she said, would you like to do the book? And I'm like, well, let me think about it. Yes. But <laughs> I was so surprised. I mean, I, I knew he knew who I was. I had just done a cover story with him. I had been at SI at that mm -hmm. time. And I did a cover story on him as the coach of the Pacers. And, you know, it went really well. And I loved him. I've always loved him. Because I, I loved how transparent he always was. Like, he didn't mm -hmm. mess around. He told you how it was. And so maybe, maybe that, I don't know. I was really surprised. I had no idea that he would ever trust me to do something like that it was shocking to me because I just didn't know how you don't know how these guys perceive you till much much later part of what I hear you saying is you can't think about what these relationships are all the time you just got to be got do your job. present yeah do your job you know you're not there to make friends you really aren't well that that connects to the second thing I wanted to say which is like you just said you love Larry I do. There's probably 15 guys so far that you've described that way. And it feels genuine. Like you genuinely like love them. And that gets back to that relationship question I was asking at the beginning, which is like, obviously it's possible you do it. I just, I, I, I need help understanding how you can both love someone and cover them. Well, I love them afterwards, so, but it happens afterwards. That's what happens. I mean, when I was covering Larry, our relationship was very different than it is now. You know, like mm -hmm. I just did a panel with Charles Barkley in Atlanta. When I was covering Chuck, he was the same then as he is now, but he's the exception, not the rule. I mean, mm -hmm. I covered Patrick Ewing. It took me five years for him to even answer one of my questions mm -hmm. because he was so guarded and so careful. And But now, I remember I was in... Uh, DC, the Warriors were playing the Wizards and I was there to do a Warriors story. They were practicing at Georgetown. And so I went up and said hi to Patrick. You know, he was the coach. And mm -hmm. it was great to see him. And we had a completely different conversation than we had when I was covering him. It's just yeah. different. I wasn't going around saying I love Larry Bird when I was covering him. 
because <laughs> right. I didn't know enough about him. I didn't have that relationship with him. So this right. is well after the fact, you know, like today's players. I don't I don't have a relationship with any of today's players like that. No, no, I don't. I mean, I'm older, more removed. The climate's changed a bit. That doesn't mean I'm not like I think Marcus Smart's I get the biggest kick out of Marcus Smart. You know, mm-hmm. I think Steph Curry's tremendous, but I don't have that same relationship with him now because I'm in it. Well, I'm not really in it anymore, but that comes later. Like Magic Johnson, we did when the game was ours. Like He's like, well, you were Boston. I couldn't talk to you. You know, that was part of the deal, <laughs> right? So you don't find out till later. And that's probably how it should be, right? We're not, yeah. there, to, we're not there to make friends and go, up, go clubbing with these guys. I mean, that's just not what it's supposed to be. Right. That's helpful. And part of the, the way that you need to keep that remove is so you can say something difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I like people. I like people. And sometimes you have to say difficult things about people you like. And mm-hmm. the problem for, for today's young journalists is if you do that, you, you might get cut off. Get iced out. Yeah, and that, I mean, that happened in my day too. And, but you could be reasonable with these athletes. You could talk to them. You could say, hey, I'm going to write this. Talk me out of it. You know, I don't know if that works today. I don't really know. Was there a time where you pissed someone off and that you thought they were justified? Yeah, I, actually, anytime I criticized someone, I could understand that. I always thought they were justified because it's no fun to have whatever the subscribers were in the Boston Globe or Sports Illustrated pick up something and read about your your deficiencies or your, your mistakes or whatever. Yeah, I always thought it was justified. And that's why we always had this thing at the Globe. It was a rule. Like if you wrote something critical, even if you had the day off, even whatever, you had to show up the next day. If you wrote hmm. of a critical story about a, an athlete who was on the road, you know, the globe would fly us there to be there the next day to, that was the deal, you know? Really? Well, it should be that way. You know, otherwise it's duck and run, hit and run, <laughs> which plenty of people do. So it's not just saying, talk me out of it on the front end. It's showing up on the back end. Yeah. And, and that's hard. That's the most difficult part of our job. It's not fun when these superstar people are mad at you or upset with you. It's not fun. But it, it is part of the deal. Who's the maddest ever? Like who, what's, what's the... Uh, well, Larry Johnson was pretty mad. <laughs> I had written a column. You know, they had played um, for the, the USA basketball. It wasn't the Olympics. It was the... And I don't know if you remember, it was in Toronto and they were grabbing their crotch and they were really... Derek mm-hmm. Coleman, Larry Johnson. They behaved, I thought, very boorishly. So I wrote a Sunday column saying exactly that, that being an Olympian is a right, not a privilege. And they shouldn't be in, on the, the team because their behavior was deplorable, basically. So the Hornets came into town. He was with the Hornets then. And I don't think he even knew who I was. The local reporter, when I came into the locker room, pointed him out to me and said, He's, she's the one that wrote this thing or whatever. So whatever. If that's mm-hmm. how you get your kicks, good for you. And But I was there, and he, he came right at me, and it was he's this big guy. He didn't hurt me or anything, but he was mad. And, you know, I get it. You know, And he's probably thinking, you don't even know me. You're writing this crap or whatever. And Alonzo Mourning stepped in between us. And um, afterwards, I said to Alonzo, thank you. He goes, I didn't do it for you. I did it for my team, which mm-hmm. is 100% right, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was, he was probably the maddest. But, you know, there were, there were times I wrote stuff about Larry that I'm sure he didn't like. Times I wrote about stuff about Shaq that he, because he, he referenced it when we did the book. He's like, yeah, and I'm even letting you do this book even after you said this or whatever. And right. Kobe, I mean, I went at Kobe pretty good after Eagle, Colorado. There was some radio silence there for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of guys, you know, you have to. Was there ever a moment after one of these big features, these big profiles where you've really spent a ton of time with someone? Were there ever moments after those stories where there was static with them afterwards? So the worst one ever, the worst one ever for me, and I regret it to this day, and I don't know how, it, how I was so off base on it, was there was a, a football coach at Holy Cross named Dan Allen who I liked very much. I knew him. I covered him as a player at Holy Cross back when I was young. And then he was an assistant coach, and then he was the head coach. And he was ill. And um, some doctor had given him an ALS diagnosis. Someone else thought he had been exposed to the fumes from the courts. The new basketball courts had been redone. Anyway, it was kind of a complicated story, and I really liked Dan a lot. And um, he was battling this, and I just admired him so much. He was so brave and so courageous in this fight he was having. He did end up passing away. And I interviewed his wife, and she talked to me at length. And I'm, I'm, I think I made a mistake. 
I don't think she realized what on the record versus off the record meant. She shared some, you know, personal details that I didn't realize she didn't want in the story. You know, I wanted to write a beautiful story for Dan Allen and his family about this struggle and how courageous he was in the face of what it was. And that's not what they read. That's not yeah. what they saw. That's not what they felt. And they felt betrayed. And I'll carry that with me for the rest of my life. I, I'm, um, and normally you shouldn't worry about what someone, you can't really care about what, if someone likes the story you wrote or not. That's normally, you know, sometimes you're like, well, yeah, this is a little critical because I didn't feel this story was critical at all. I felt it mm -hmm. was human. And I think it was a little too close to home or whatever, but I carry that one around with me because mm. I was trying to do something nice for them at a really terrible time in their life to give him something uplifting as best you could in that situation. And uh, it was not received that way. And if I could do it over, I'd figure out a different way to do it. And there's, you know, other ones. We did an investigative series on Reggie Lewis and the cause of his death and the fact that he used drugs. And, you know, Reggie was a terrific kid. Reggie and I literally grew up together in this business. I covered Northeastern right out of college when he was playing. Then he yeah. got drafted by the Celtics, and I was, like, oh, gone over to the Celtics right about that time. thought he was a terrific player. I, th I think he would have been a Hall of Famer had he lived. He blocked Michael Jordan's shot four times in one game. And we had to write a very difficult series on his situation because there was a doctor who made some claims that, you know, he was sued for them and we had to find out the truth. So that yeah. was no fun at all doing that one. Horrible. I can imagine. Was doing the mental health series challenging in, in, in that way? Well, it was challenging just to get people to feel comfortable to come forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm really glad we did that. I, I think it's one of the most important things I've ever done in many ways because it really got people talking. You know, DeMar DeRozan was already talking a little bit. Kevin Love, I was asking about it behind a curtain at the All-Star Game in L.A., and he started thinking about it, and then he wrote his own thing first. And then, of course, the two of us since then have really joined forces to talk about mental health whenever possible. Mm -hmm. But it was the other guys, like Marcus Morris, one of the toughest, meanest, nastiest yeah. guys in the NBA, for him to come forward and share that, I thought was so courageous and so important. And I'm still, just to this day, so grateful that he had the courage to do that. So I thought it was a very important story. We had a lot of big, big guys, big names, all the way up to the finish line that at the 11th hour decided they just didn't want to reveal themselves because they were in a free agent year or whatever. And I respected that. The idea was not to out anybody, right? Mm -hmm. The idea was to make the conversation a little more mainstream. And hopefully we've, we've done that. How did you approach reporting that story? Like, how do you broach that topic? Yeah, well, that was hard. But it's funny. I would just, whoever came into town... Like Bruce Bowen, he, you know, he was doing Spurs radio or Clippers television. I can't remember. He was doing some kind of media. And I was saying to him, hey, this is the story I'm doing. I said, you know, if you know of anybody that might want to talk about this, I said, I, it's hard. You know, again, I don't want to embarrass anyone or out anybody, but I'm, I'm trying to hear from people that experience these kind of things. And he said, well, that's me. And he's just started telling me. Like everybody... Wow. I remember, I mean, Marcus Morris, I had no idea. And I said to him, hey, I'm doing this story. And um, it's, it just feels like everybody's had some mental health challenges. And I said, I don't know if you have, or maybe you know of someone that have. And he's like, call me tomorrow. And he gave me his number. I was just amazed, you know? Wow. I think people just were ready to talk about it. They were ready to yeah. talk about it. I got one more question for you, and then I'll let you go, which is you have operated in all of these different places in sports media you've been a beat reporter and a columnist and a feature writer and on around the horn tons and tons of talking podcasts now you just did a narrative one like you've you've done all of these things and also over that time the nba has gone from tape delayed playoff games to a gigantic gigantic global business i wonder when you think about sports media and its relationship to the leagues and the players that mm -hmm. it covers whether you feel optimistic about what's coming next or no pessimistic. i do not yeah i'm very pessimistic i'm so disappointed in adam silver i just couldn't be any more disappointed in him you know during the pandemic access had to be changed because of the circumstances the reporters were assured over and over again that when the pandemic ended normal 
um, access would be put back in place. And then Adam pulled the rug out. And um, I think it's a bad precedent. And I, I've, I've encouraged all the writers, because again, I'm not really part of this anymore. You know, I'm for the most part, not really in that world. But I told them you should all boycott the games and hmm. see how they like the coverage. Because they're wrong if they think they don't need, everybody thinks, well, the, the, this media doesn't matter anymore. We have our own platform. The NBA has our own. We have our own group. I'm like, okay, go ahead. Just see how people do without any of these really fine reporters and writers. Just go ahead, see. So I really bothered, very, very bothered by it, very disappointed by it. What do you think it looks like? I mean, that, that world you're saying, go ahead and see. What, what does that look like? Well, if they stopped, if everybody boycotted, I just think consumers would realize, oh, okay, wow, they really did provide a service. They gave me color. They took me inside the locker room. They showed me why this guy was upset. You know, Carl Anthony Towns has the worst game of his life in the biggest moment of his life so far. And do you think his platform, I don't even know if he has his own production company, you think they're going to tell it the same way the people that were there that saw the anguish and the frustration and the, no one was going to accuse Carl Anthony Towns of not trying hard enough. It was the opposite. He was trying too hard. All these things. And, you know, presenting that picture for them if everybody like just didn't go and you and just saw the box score, you're going to get the same story? No, you're not. And so sometimes I don't think even the consumers understand what we do. Mm -hmm. This is a hard job. It's really hard what these young journalists are doing. And it's important and it, it matters, not just in sports, obviously, and everywhere. And so you limit access, you cut off access, you, you put them all into group situations where everyone's getting the same quote from the same player. You got to be kidding me. That's just not how our business works. Be careful what you wish for. I mean, I don't know if they'll do it, but I was like, I was totally telling them you should. Just boycott all the games. And aside from a boycott, like, what do you tell a young reporter? What would you tell a young Jackie McMullen about how to approach this job? Like, Show up. Just show up early and stay late. Show up before games. Show up before practice. If a player's doing a media event, show up. Just show up. Be there. Be there all the time. Have them know that you're working just as hard as they are. We used to try fly commercially with the with the team. Right. If they had a triple overtime game, they were out on a 7.30 a.m. flight. Sometimes guys would change their flights to sleep in. And I was like, I never did that. Not once. I want them to know I'm up just like you. I'm tired just like you. I'm coming back with you guys, you know. Mm -hmm. So just show up. That's what I tell all young guys. Show up. Ask questions. Ask questions that other people are afraid to ask. Set yourself apart. But what if you're not allowed to show up? Find a way. Find a way. There's got to be a way. There's always a way. I used to go before practice started. That's how I got to know the Celtics players. Mm -hmm. And now it, that doesn't do you much good anymore. So you got to figure out other ways. You got to figure it out. I mean, I always loved the time on the court before the game. Because hmm. guys come in, they do their pregame warm-ups way early. And then we come in and they're hanging around the court and you sit with co the opposing coaches, the opposing broadcasters. And you, you see, that, that to me was always a great time to develop some relationships and to get some insight like that whole mental health series was done like that because mm -hmm. you don't want to come at somebody with a jackhammer right a story yeah. that sensitive you have to ease into it do you miss it jackie do you miss that kind of reporting not right now maybe later i don't really miss any of it right now it's this <laughs> this podcast took sucked the life right out of me it was a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of writing and a lot of rewriting and recording and adding you know players at the 11th hour because we got to an episode and you realize oh, there's a hole here so we got to go back and, you know, some of that went on. They're a lot harder than people realize. In my oh, so hard. Yeah. I'm not sure I need to do another one, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for doing this one. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Susan Peterson handled the show notes. Thanks to them. Thanks to Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to Jackie McMullen. Her podcast is Icons Club. You can find it anywhere you're listening to this show. We'll see you next week. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. 
I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. 